If you haven't opened up your Bibles yet, please open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to warn you at the onset, this is going to be a hard passage. A a mentor of mine once said that um, messages can kind of break out along two ways. There's come and see, like you see in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Come and see this Jesus who has told me everything that I've done. Come and meet him. And then there's your go and die passages. Um, this is going to be a go and die, not, not a come and see. If you came here hoping to hear pithy sayings like, God will never give you more than you can handle, I'm just going to tell you that this passage says the opposite. Um, what we're, going, the, we're calling our sermon this morning, Join Me, as in join me in following Jesus. And though Paul and Timothy were separated by a thousand miles and by a prison sentence, Paul still invited Timothy to join him in following Jesus the way that he has followed Jesus. And and this isn't an easy passage. It's not an easy sermon. It's no easier to receive than it is to preach. But it's beautiful nevertheless. And it's only bad news if your call to Christ didn't include a call to take up your cross and follow him. For those of you who when you came to Christ, you embraced the cost of the cross. This is just gospel preaching. There is no bad news because the call to come and die is not bad news. It's just life in Christ and life in the gospel. Uh, I'm going to read a Bonhoeffer quote to you. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who, um, he was a pacifist, believe it or not, that lived during World War II, but... um, When all of the German pastors sold out to Hitler and the Nazi regime, Dietrich Bonhoeffer refused to, and he ended up losing his life in an assassination attempt against Adolf Hitler. And this is a quote that really speaks to where our passage is going to go. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the cost of discipleship. He lived that ultimate cost, and he's now seated with Christ in glory. So Paul invites Timothy to join him in following Christ, and he gives three important aspects of following Jesus. I have my outline back here for any of you note takers. It's going to break out with join me in making disciples in verses one and two. And then it's going to transition into join me in suffering for the gospel in verses 3 through 7, and then it's going to end with join me in remembering Jesus Christ in verses 8 through 13. I'm going to ask if you'd stand. I'm going to read our whole text and then pray, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Please read along. This is God's word. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer 
who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think through what I say. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Lord, I thank you for this great text. I pray that this morning, in my weakness and delivery, that you would be made strong, Lord, and that we would see Jesus, that we would follow hard after you. Lord, let us see you in your glory and know that you are worth everything. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, he starts out with the words, you then. This is a word to help him kind of turn the corner from where chapter 1 had ended. If you remember chapter 1, Paul was telling Timothy about these people that had deserted him and had left him and had made his gospel ministry more difficult. And then he brings up somebody who he wants the Lord to bless because this person had shown him kindness when everybody else had abandoned him. But now he's transitioning with these words, you then, and he's going to make it personal as he's talking to Timothy. And then he makes it even more personal. You then, my child. You could feel the weight of Paul's words starting to ratchet up. He was already pretty weighty in chapter 1 as he was calling us to remember Jesus. But now he's saying, you then. I'm about to get really personal and specific. Remember, this is Paul's last letter before he ends up being beheaded by Nero. He's sitting in the maritime prison awaiting his trial and death. And he's saying, you then, this might be the last time I get to talk to you. Listen to what I have to say. And what he says to him first is be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When you see how difficult this journey is ahead of Timothy, you realize that he's going to need strength for the journey. Just to embark in that quote that I read by Dietrich Bonhoeffer before, you would realize that you need God's grace to give you strength for that journey, but not his own strength, the strength that is in Christ Jesus. Trying to attack what's in front of Timothy with a strength that presides inside of Timothy alone would surely end in disaster for the church and destruction for Timothy. We saw that throughout the book of 1 Samuel, which we were going through in the spring, right? Every time Saul did something in his own flesh and in his own power, how did it end? It always ended in destruction. And then you would see David come along and do something in the grace and the strength that's provided with Christ Jesus, and it always stood out in far opposition to the fleshly works of Paul. Plus, We don't even need to look at metaphorical stories, right? We know this experientially. Has God ever called you to something where instead of waiting on the Lord, you just ran out ahead of him and asked him to join you sometime along the way? You're like, I'm just going to go start this, and I'm sure the Lord is being the good tag team runner that he is. He'll join me and grab that baton somewhere, and then you end up just running into a wall, right? Because you find out you weren't even on the right track to begin with. So don't do this in your strength, Timothy. Be strengthened by the grace that Jesus supplies. Take strength from the grace of God that is ours 
And Creekside is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're suffering today, if you're going through trial, take strength in the grace of God that is yours by merit of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he tells him why he's going to need this strength. He says, take what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also in verse 2. So he's saying, take this grace that you've been strengthened by, Timothy, and you have a job to do as you're filled and strengthened by that grace. Take what you've heard from me. What What did he hear from Paul? The gospel, right? What is the gospel? It's the good news that though we condemned sinners as we are may find eternal life through the perfect life, through the death, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in him, we might be saved and have the eternal life in this life and everlasting life in the next. We saw that in chapter 1. He's saying, take that gospel that you've heard and start to implant And entrust that gospel to a new generation of faithful men who will be able to lead the church. In the presence of many witnesses, he says, meaning this is the legit gospel that you heard. Other people can testify. You grew up hearing the real deal gospel. This was not some funky version of the gospel that these false teachers are trying to bring into the the church. He's saying you were raised in the real thing. Timothy, I want you to take that gospel and I want you to begin to share it with faithful men who will be able to teach. So he's told four different things. Well, I'm going to hit on four things that he's told to do with this faithful gospel, to entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach. So he's saying, raise up teachers of God's word, Timothy. And I want to make it clear, this is a commandment. He didn't say, raise up teachers with God's word, seminary. Go farm out your necessity to do this. He told a man in the church that one of your job as a pastor in the church is to raise up this ongoing group of faithful men who will be able to entrust that gospel to others and preach that gospel to others. Raise up the next generation of church planters, Timothy, because if we just plant one generation of church plants, you're not going to have a church. I mean, it's, it's uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Providential, that we looked at the church in Turkey. If you look at the statistics on the church of Turkey, it is one of the most unchurched countries in the entire world. I mean, the gospel, there are so few Christians there. Do you know what the most churched country was in the early world? I'll give you a guess. It's the country that I just named. Turkey. Why? Did the place that was the most churched place on earth become one of the least place churched places on earth because of the failure to take seriously the commandment to raise up faithful gospel preachers to the next generation? You can't just plant a church and be like, well, we planted a church in 100 AD. We haven't planted any churches in the last 1900 years. Well, why is the gospel not going forth in this area? Because you abdicated your responsibility, Timothy. And don't just raise up anybody. Make sure that these men are faithful. Don't entrust this precious gospel to fools 
who are going to wield it with no empathy and wield it foolishly. And just some words on this call. This, to me, is what gets me out of bed in the morning. This is the most passionate part of my calling. I mean, historically, it's, it's what I've done. Since the day that the Lord saved me, one of the thoughts that I had was all of the people that I care about, because I didn't really know many Christians once the Lord saved me, right? All of my prior relationships were non-Christians. I started to realize that nobody gave a crap about whether they got saved or not. And it was a problem to me. Like, churches were appealing to the people who had already heard the gospel and gotten saved. But they didn't give too much thought about those people. So historically, I was like, man, if, if I'm going to see like my whole band of friends get saved, I at least need to see one of them get saved. And, and maybe after one of them, we need to see like four of them get saved. And we need to be an army of people going out to share the gospel. To, and, and that's what I did, church planting in my own hometown for years. This summer, it's what we're doing with Second Timothy. That's why we have six different newer preachers who are going to be preaching in this book. It's the commandment right here. We're trying to obey it. Um, I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that we're going to be kicking off this thing in the fall called Foundations. It's going to be like a two-year training school that we're going to do right here at Creekside. And it's because we want to take this commandment seriously to raise up people to preach the gospel to the next generation. This is what Creekside must be about. That's not hyperbole. We just celebrated a 20th anniversary. How cool is that? The average church that's planted in America today doesn't make it to their third anniversary. We've just seen 20 years of God's faithfulness. Do you want to see 50 years of God's faithfulness? Do you know that it's not going to be Marv and Steve leading you guys into 50 years of God's faithfulness? That's why this commandment is here. We need to identify and train young leaders. And when they train, we need to send them out to do their thing. And I care about this so passionately because, in my opinion, the church in America has abdicated this responsibility. And it's harming the gospel witness in our country. Most would rather take the already trained people and have them invest the majority of their time putting on good church services, creating good church programs for good Christians, rather than raising them up and training them and sending them to go make disciples who send make disciples. That's just truth. And it shows. You know how it shows? I can prove it to you. Church services are more polished than they've ever been in the 2,000-year history of the church, and less people care than ever. Could it be that maybe our polish isn't the thing that was bringing people to Jesus Christ? I mean, when you hear, like, when, when you look at these early church services where Paul's talking to Timothy about, one thing they missed altogether was polish. <laughs> I mean, I imagine that there's, like, animals walking in and out, and it smells like, you know, goat poop in the middle of your meeting. These things were not polished, but Jesus was in the center. The church is not a museum for religious people. It's a teaching hospital to go out and reach those who have not heard the gospel yet. You know, I used to share with my church all the time, and and some of you might find this difficult to hear. Um, So be it. Um, We're about making disciples. You're welcome to be here, even if you're not about making disciples. 
but I pray that you're uncomfortable. And I mean that from the bottom of my... Jesus has called you to make disciples. He hasn't just... He, he didn't call the guy standing up here to make disciples. He's called you. He's called Creekside. He's called every single one of you who's sitting in these seats, who claims the name of Jesus, to go and be a disciple maker, and you are going to be accountable for how you handled the Great Commission when you stand before him. So if you don't take that seriously, I pray that you're uncomfortable and you repent. If making disciples is not a part of anything that you think or pray about, yet you sit around and critique church services, I pray that you repent. And if you don't, God will bring you to repentance, I promise. And I'm going to keep praying. It's not just necessary for the mission, though. It's necessary for Timothy, right? Timothy couldn't carry this load alone. Think about what Paul left him. He, Paul left him a church full of heretics who all hate Timothy and want to take him out. You can't carry that load alone. He's saying you need others to help you carry this load, Timothy. So not only is it God's plan to facilitate the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's also God's design that we would lead in plurality. That's why we don't believe that there's a senior pastor of the church here at Creekside. Do you know who the senior pastor is of this church? His name is Jesus Christ. And I've always preached that in any church, the senior pastor should be able to get hit by a bus and the only thing that would ever stop is taking some time for his funeral. Because you can't hit Jesus with a bus. The senior pastor is going to abide when our lead pastor is gone. The senior pastor is going to still be here when each of us are here no longer. That's why plurality is so important. And Timothy's going to need his dogs to carry out this next part of the text because it gets deep. Look with me at verse 3. He says, <clears throat> Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, there are many direct calls to embrace suffering in the Bible. And every single one of them, if you read them seriously, ought to put a lump in your throat, right? This one's as direct as it gets, and it's caused me to really think this week. Um, been a, it's been a hard week, and I've had to preach this text to myself and say, do I believe this? Do I believe the lump in my throat? Do I believe if I can call you that Jesus Christ has called you to suffer? as a good soldier? Am I willing to suffer as a good soldier? Do I believe this? We are called to share in suffering. And hear me on this. This is, this is so important. This, this could be a paradigm shifter for somebody. This is not saying suffering is inevitable to happen, so you might as well accept suffering. That's usually where I land when I look at suffering, right? And that's not even easy. Just getting to the place of acceptance. That's why people pray, like in 12 steps, they pray the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Like just acceptance of those things that put a lump in your throat can be so difficult at times. But what this is saying is that big, bold vision that I'm entrusting you with, Timothy, of sending out people and entrusting them with the gospel and sending them to go save the whole world in the name of Jesus, you're going to need to embrace a life of suffering if you're ever going to embrace that calling. That's not easy believism, right? 
And it's not like Timothy had never suffered before. As Fred shared really well last week, this guy's whole life has been suffering up to this point. But here we see that suffering is not something to get on the other side of. It's a lifestyle to embrace. Hear me on that. Suffering is not something to get on the other side of. It's a lifestyle to embrace for the Christian. And that's not easy. That's why it takes being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul gives three metaphors to show just how not easy this is. Because he doesn't want to call Timothy to this and then not equip him for this calling. So he starts out in verse 4, continuing this metaphor of the soldier. And he talks about the single-minded soldier. Look at, look at verse 4. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So here Paul's returning to one of his favorite images, the image of the Roman soldier. I'm guessing it's one of his favorite images because Paul didn't have TV. Do you know what Paul's TV was? Being chained to a Roman soldier. So it's like, this is what Paul got to look at. The Roman soldier doing things like this. So that's probably in his mind a lot while he's sitting in prison. And here, the soldier is a picture of the Christian who is sold out and single-minded in the devotion to the mission of the gospel. We get that from the term soldier that was used in the last statement where he's saying a soldier is somebody who's willing to join in a mission of suffering. And we also see here that it's a person who refuses to get tangled up in civilian pursuits. I want to explain a little bit of what civilian pursuits is because I have heard some moralistic, non-gospel preaching on this when it is one of the most gospel-centered texts that you could possibly preach on. He's not saying stay away from secular things. He's not saying, hey, Timothy, as a good soldier, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls who do. Um, That's not what this calling is. Entanglement if we, if he, he hits in other areas of the scriptures, if we avoid in any entanglement, if, if we avoid just being in the world, God would have to take us out of the world. Secular stuff needs Jesus too. So he's not saying don't go and preach the gospel into the secular world. Um, it goes deeper than that. I want you to listen to these words. I should have put it up on a slide, but I forgot. But these are from an old-timey historian named Tertullian. He lived from 160, 155 A.D. to 220 A.D. So he, he was raised by the generation that was raised up after the apostles. And he wrote this book called Address to the Martyrs because under mm, the reign of Diocletian, more people were being martyred than ever before previously in the history of the church. So he wrote a book to them who were going through persecution. And on this verse, he had to say, No soldier comes to war surrounded by luxuries, nor goes into action from a comfortable bedroom, but from a makeshift narrow of a tent, where every kind of hardness and severity and unpleasantness is to be found. That was Tertullian's way of cheering up people that were being fed to lions, but at least he was giving them truth, right? God has not left us without truth in this world. And the rest of this verse gives us the reason. He says, because the faithful soldier's goal is to please the one who enlisted him. And unfortunately, that would have taken no explanation in Paul's first century world because they still lived in what you would call an honor culture. The United States in 2022 is not an honor culture. 
We don't just go do our job because we've been called to by something outside of ourselves in order to please the one who hired us or enlisted us. Um, We think that we're too individual for that. Who's the one that enlisted to tell me what to do? Has he consulted me first? Because maybe I have better things to say about the way that I should have been listed. But this would have been pretty straightforward in the first century. And when you put it all together, Paul's saying, as a soldier, you're going to suffer. I've never talked to a soldier who was put in active duty, who doesn't have the marks of suffering still in their brain or their body. It just doesn't happen, does it? So as a soldier, you're going to suffer, but don't shrink back and pursue civilian life because the one who enlisted you and called you to the mission is faithful. And we don't shrink back, Creekside, to comfortable civilian life just because things get hard and we live on a road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be his name, right? We don't shrink back when suffering comes because suffering is not a part of the Christian life. It is emblematic of taking up the cross to follow Jesus. The one who enlisted us is true and faithful, and he's worth it. The call to Christ is a call to abandon the civilian life. So I just want to ask before I go on to verse 5, have you abandoned the civilian life? You can't live like a civilian during wartime. Then he goes on to the next metaphor, the law-abiding athlete, verse 5. He says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And here Paul's using another one of his favorite imagery, the Roman Olympic, or the Greek Olympics. And this one's straightforward. An athlete doesn't get a trophy if they break the rules of the game. While studying this week, I I came across, and this is not a funny text, so short pericope of a two-minute funny story, because it just cracked me up. There was the marathon back in England some years ago, and it was a really rainy, muddy marathon because England is basically just Oregon and Europe, right? Um, This guy runs the first couple miles, and you know how there's always like big crowds of people on the sides of marathons? He just dips out, catches a bus, takes the bus to the mile 24 mark, and then gets off, dips back in in the crowd, and then he's just sprinting, right? Because he doesn't have 24 miles of running under him at this point. He's just been sitting on the bus, chilling, and he ends up winning the marathon. Well, the next day, he's in the paper, and people who are on the bus with him end up calling the news station. (laughs) And they say, like, you can't help but recognize the guy who had, like, a bib on, on the bus and was covered in mud. But it gets even weirder. The guy has refused to give back the medal. And in an interview that he's done just recently, he said how sad it is that he doesn't get to go on and defend his title. Look, dude, you don't get the crown. You cheated. You don't get to run again. You disqualified yourself. You didn't win the marathon, right? And that's the point that Paul's making here. You can't run the race with no regard to God's word or God's law and then just show up and be like, ta-da! Do you think God's going to reward you for that? He's going to be like, well, you know, you made it to the end. You cut every corner and didn't do anything I asked you to, but you made it to the end. And I I would speak, you know, since I don't have my group of younger people right there that I I like to zero in on, I'm going to speak to the older people here, God wants more than you just making it to the end. 
Do you know that every single one of you is going to make it to the end of your life? <laughs> it took no like special doing or planning for you to be born and then die when God says you're going to die. It's going to happen to every one of you. But if you cut every rule and just try to avoid suffering at all costs to get there, do you really expect the judge to be like, well done, run the race, but do it how God asked us to. Creekside, as good soldiers, as well-trained athletes, compete according to your master's rules. And then he gives one more illustration in verse 6. He said, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. This is the final illustration. Paul's highlighting the need for hard work and dependence upon God. The gospel worker was called to be single-minded, play fair, and now he's called to work hard. We understand the imagery of the hard-working farmer, right? How many people here have been involved in farming at some point in your life? Gosh. Was it easy? All right, point made, right? I don't even need to preach this one anymore. If you're a lazy farmer, read the book of Proverbs. It doesn't go well for you. You don't get crops if you're a lazy farmer. John Stott, a writer, a Christian writer, I really appreciate the way he thinks, said this all the way back in 1973. He said, the notion that Christian service is hard work is so unpopular to some happy-go-lucky Christian circles that I feel the need to underline it. Souls are hardly won for Christ, not by the slick, automatic application of a formula, but by tears and sweat and pain, especially in prayer and the sacrificial personal relationship. It's the hardworking farmer who can expect the good results. Thank you, Mr. Stott. That's a great quote. You know, after the hardworking farmer does their hard work, what do they do? They have to wait. You can't just sit there and be like, come on, beets, come out of the ground. Like, it's not going to happen. You can't cheer the fruit out of the ground. You can't be a hype man to the veggies. Um, I don't know why I I thought of beet farmers. Dwight Schrute came to mind, actually. Um, It's both. The, The farmer has to work hard, but then they have to trust in a sovereign God. And then, what does it say they get to do? They get to enjoy the fruit of their labors. Now, this isn't talking about sitting down and eating a watermelon once it's come to full fruition, though that's delicious. This is all in the context of making disciples. If you've ever done the hard work of making disciples, you get what Paul's at getting at. I got to tell you, the reason that I love making disciples and planting churches way more than... um, even being up here and preaching, I, I don't know. I was going to say preaching, but then I was like, that sounds so wrong while I'm preaching. Um, but I take far more joy in seeing the disciples that I've had a hand in raising up by God's grace and seeing them succeed and grow and prosper and become warriors for the gospel than anything the Lord's ever done at the work of my hands. And any of you parents, you understand that. When you see your children succeed, how many of you don't Pray for your kids. Would you please surpass anything that I've ever done in this life? I pray that for my kids all the time. I mean, I'm hoping my generation was just one step to move the ball a little bit forward, right? And if the Lord should tarry, that they just take it and run with that ball. And then he gives you application in verse 7. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. That's a natural application from the text. As you think about the single-minded soldier, about the rule-keeping athlete, about the hard-working farmer, ask yourself questions, is what he's saying. 
participate in these examples. It's an application we can participate in. Are you willing to answer the call to come and die as a soldier of Jesus Christ? I, I might get myself in trouble on this, but as I've watched Christians take place in political discourse over the last couple of years, I've wondered if Christians are more comfortable with a commandment to go and kill than they would be to come and die. I mean, I hear a lot of, we got to defend the camp. we got to defend the camp. But I don't hear a whole lot of, I want to put my life out there as a living sacrifice to my Lord. Think about these things. The Lord will give you understanding. And in the final point of our text, join me in remembering Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. He says, remember Christ Jesus. This is how we become faithful soldiers, farmers, race runners. What in particular does Paul bring to mind to remember about Christ Jesus? Risen from the dead. Remember Jesus. He's your God. And he's victorious. Even if they kill you, you're just going to go be with Jesus. What can man do to you? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because he took the sting out of it when he punked death and walked out of the grave. He's victorious over death and suffering. And then what does he bring up? Remember Christ Jesus, the offspring of David. He's saying, remember, he's your king. Your king gave you marching orders. He's commissioned you. You don't get to say, nah, king, I'm good, dog. You're called to follow that king where he's called you it's called obedience then he says remember jesus as preached in my gospel he's saying just as he's always been presented to you remember him timothy i love these next words he says for which i am suffering as a criminal bound in chains man paul's suffering paul's embraced this call to suffer. He's bound in chains like a guilty criminal right now. And he's not asking Timothy to something that he himself has not embraced. And guess what? Jesus didn't ask Paul to something he himself didn't embrace when he took hold of the cross, despising the shame. Paul had chosen to embrace this, but can we be honest? This is not an easy call to embrace. I remember hearing this man, Ben Patterson, speak on this one time. And he said that he went to go visit a mentor of his as the guy was on his deathbed. And he said, do you have any final word for me as you're dying? And the guy said, yes, don't take it personally. He said, well, don't take what personally? He said, any of it. Man, don't take any of it. Paul had chosen not to take this suffering personally. Because Why? The word of God's not bound, he's saying. What do you do with a man with perspective like this? Paul had embraced his calling to be a messenger of the gospel. And if his imprisonment was the way that the gospel was now going to go forth, like he said in Philippians chapter 1, in pretense or in truth, if the gospel is preached in this, I what? Rejoice. These are not empty words. This is a man who wrote those words and is now getting the opportunity to live them in real time as he gets to the end of his life. And he explains the motivation for this in verse 10. He says, I do, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Man, when you've already gone 
pretty late, getting into election is not the wisest thing to do. So let's jump in. Um, he says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? I mean, this can be a contentious point, right? So I want to address this in the most non-contentious manner where whatever your view of election, you should be able to embrace. What he's saying here, and you see it with the way he ends the sentence, he's talking about people who are out there that God wants to save who have yet to hear the gospel. And he's saying, I endure everything for them. Because there's still people who haven't heard who God wants to be a part of his family. That's why I get out of bed in the morning on the toughest of days. There are still people who have not heard. We should all believe that God is not done with unbelievers and is still calling them to himself. Amen? Like, you should believe that within McMinnville, there are tons of people who the Lord has called by his name who have not yet called upon him. You should believe that there are families, there are broken sinners who have yet to call on the name of Jesus that Jesus died for and wants to be a part of his family. So with that in mind, Paul's saying, I'm willing to endure everything for their sake. This is written in the present tense. Check this out. This is a guy who probably by his age, should be able to say, I've done my suffering thing by now. I should be able to ride off into the sunset. This is a younger man's game. But he's not just willing to walk and find acceptance for the suffering in his past, which is already difficult, right? People go to like years of counseling, and I'm not trying to make fun of that, to be able to just make sense of the suffering in their past. He's saying, even with all of that suffering in the past, I'm willing to suffer even more if it means that one of the elect might come to hear the good news of Jesus Christ through my suffering. And then he ends the passage with a trustworthy saying. Look at verses 11 through 13. He says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's a trustworthy saying. Some people believe that this was an early Christian hymn in the church. If it wasn't, it was at least something that people knew, like an early catechism. And he's saying, if we, first, if we've died with him, we're going to live with him. This one's straightforward, but I want to ask you a question to see if you can understand it. I want you to meditate on this for a second. If you who are suffering, if you could go to heaven right now, have an end of suffering, have everything you've ever wanted, and have everlasting life, but God's not there, would you still want to go? Thank you. Man, that sounds like, that sounds like hell. Eternal separation from my God. Heaven is not just the lack of suffering. It's forever living in the presence of Jesus. And that's what he means when he says, if you lived with him, you are always going to be living with him. Mm. If we endure, we will reign with him. Suffering is inevitable. But if we don't shrink back as a result, we will reign with him in his kingdom. It's like when he says to the churches of Revelation, let him who hears, he who overcomes shall reign with me. If we endure with him, we reign with with him. You know, just real quickly on the idea of reigning, this one makes me feel strange sometimes because I've never wanted to reign anything in my life. That, that, that seems scary to me. The emphasis isn't on you, it's on Jesus. It's saying when you endure with him, when he reigns, you get to be a part of that eternal reign of Jesus. 
The emphasis is Christ. If we deny him, he will deny us. This isn't speaking of struggling or denying in a moment. We know this because when you think of denying Christ, who's the person that comes to mind from the scriptures? Who's the one that denied him three, three times? Did Christ deny Peter? In fact, look up here at John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. There's this famous moment where Jesus, seeing Peter after he denied him, he sees him on the beach, and Peter, I'm sure, is shaken, man. He just denied Jesus, and now Jesus is looking into the windows of his soul, and he walks up to Peter, and he says in verse 15, Simon Peter, do you love me? And if you know the Greek there, he's using the word agape, which is the strongest word for love in the entire Bible. That's, that's the word for God's love for us in Jesus Christ. He says, Peter, do you agape me? And if you read it in the English, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter does a trick because Peter must have known Greek. He says, no, yes, Lord, I phileo you. Phileo. It's like where we get Philadelphia. From the city of brotherly love, which is a lie. If you ever go to Philadelphia, that city's filled with hatred. Um, but he's like, Yeah, Lord, we cool. All right, then you're restored. Feed my sheep. And then he asks him again, Simon Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know, we're cash, we're cool, I love you. And then Jesus asks him a third time, Simon Peter, do you love me? Look at what Jesus does. He doesn't repeat agape this time. He hears Peter say twice, even though I denied you, I still phileo you. So Jesus says, Simon Peter, do you really phileo me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. That's what I've got. I can't say I agape you right now. I just denied you a couple days ago. But I can say that I phileo you. And what does Jesus say? He says, that's enough, Peter. Go feed my sheep. He doesn't tell him, no, you denied me. So I deny you now. Don't you know First Timothy? Or Second Timothy, that's the book we're in. 2, 12. And then the last verse, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. And what's the reason? Because he cannot deny himself. And those of us who have embraced the life of suffering... You know what's most difficult about it? Unless you're Jesus, you're going to flinch from time to time. It's a hard calling to walk in. And you know what he says? Even when you look at that mountain in front of you and you say, I can't do it. I'm faithless. This is too hard. He's not going to deny you. He didn't call you because of your faith. He saved you because of his faithfulness at the cross. And his faithfulness gave you the righteousness that you were going to need to phileo him throughout this life. So a good question to ask yourself when you're rattled, whose faithfulness am I resting on? My own, which is always going to waver, or in his, which has never wavered. I'm going to ask you just a couple of application points, but I'm going to ask our uh, musicians to come up because I'm already over and and I'll close quickly. Um, Jesus has called us to pour ourselves into the next generation. Can I ask you, can you personalize that this morning? In your own heart, can you say Jesus has called me to pour myself into the next generation? Not looking at the church staff or the people that you think are more capable, saying Jesus has called me to invest in the next generation. Number two, Jesus has called you to embrace suffering as a lifestyle, not something to get on the other side of.
That's hard words. I care for you if you're suffering. I've been praying for you all week who are suffering. But suffering, if we just continue to look at it, is once I get on the other side of this, I'll be good. You will be disappointed. Because once you get on the other side of this, do you know what's waiting for you eventually on the other side? More suffering. But we don't do it in vain. We do it for the sake of the gospel. This book calls us to continually remember Jesus. And when we do, I encourage you to remember that it's about his faithfulness, not our own. I'm going to pray, and these guys are going to lead us. God, thank you for your faithfulness. God, thank you that in all those times that I have been faithful, uh, faithless, in the amount of just such a hard calling, that you always remain faithful because you cannot deny the work that you've done in our lives through the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, for our benediction today, I'm just going to read the benediction right from our text and dismiss us. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. See you next week, Creekside.